0: Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're learning about France during the Hundred Years' War, specifically the events that will lead to the coronation of King Charles VII of France. Along the way, during the precarious Siege of Orléans, we'll also learn about the inspiring leadership given to the French troops by Saint Joan of Arc, known in France and throughout the rest of this episode as Jean d'Arc. Obviously, Jeanne is recognized as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. While her story is deeply entrenched in her belief in the Christian God, I'm not here to do a religious narrative, I'm also not here to dunk on her beliefs, so I'll do my best to tell her story in a way that respects her historical significance without trying to play into ideas of Jean performing miracles. It's often said, though, that without Jean, Charles VII would never have become king of France, and perhaps England would possibly rule over France. Maybe not up through the modern day, but at least for a few centuries more. So how does a 19-year-old from rural France rise up to become a military leader? And why did Charles place all of his bets on her victory? It's a tale like no other. War? God? God? victories and defeat. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to France near the end of the Hundred Years' War in The King and the Maiden Fair. So, what exactly was the Hundred Years' War? In a nutshell, it was a conflict that actually lasted for 116 years between France and England, Like most major wars back in the Middle Ages, it came about when a king, specifically King Charles IV of France, died without siring any heirs, a.k.a. sons. At this point in history, France had laws that prevented a woman from inheriting the throne. Would've made things a lot easier if that law didn't exist, but it did, so here we are. Also, despite the conflict being given a firm start date in 1337 and a less firm ending date in 1453, the war was not going strong for that full 116 years. The Black Plague came into play in the early years, so yeah, obviously no fighting when everyone is dying. Because of these periods of peace that came into play, the war is often divided into three separate phases the Edwardian phase, the Caroline phase, and finally the Lancastrian phase. Jean and Charles's story takes place in the Lancastrian phase of the war, so let's figure out how we get there. Before we even get to King Charles IV dying in 1328 without having a son, let's jump back a bit further. The year 1066, the Battle of Hastings. Normans, a Germanic ethnic group in France and the namesake of the region Normandy, sail across the British Channel into England and conquer the island. From that moment, England and France become intrinsically linked due to rulers of French descent now sitting on the English throne. And if you listen to the episode over Richard the Lionheart, then you might also remember that for a long time, the kings of England also ruled over a bunch of different territories that now occupy space in France. While the two neighboring nations had their rivalries, their royal families were also somewhat connected. And that's exactly what happened with King Charles IV. Charles's sister, Isabella, was the wife of King Edward II of England. Her son, Edward III of England, was Charles IV's closest living male relative at the time of the king's death. The English nobility was very quick to step in and say, Hey, Edward being the closest male relative means he's king now, right? Cool, France is ours. Queen Isabella was all in for this and declared she was giving the throne to her son. But the French nobility quickly shot down Isabella's decree saying that she didn't have the power to do that since she was a woman and could not inherit the throne of France, making it impossible to pass it down to her son. The throne eventually passed to Charles's cousin Philip, aka Philip VI. Edward III of England decided to back down from trying to take the French throne. After all, he still had some land on mainland Europe, namely the region of France known as Gascony. Well, over the years, Philip and Edward's relationship soured. French nobility began bringing up that it would be totally cool to pull one over on England by taking Gascony out of England's hands and returning it to French control. Obviously, Edward was enraged when he found out about this plan, and so he led an army into France. The first phase of the war, the Edwardian phase, saw massive gains for England. This phase gets its name from both Edward III and his son, Prince Edward, also known as the Black Prince due to him allegedly wearing black armor or carrying a black shield during battle. Ironically, this was also the phase of the war that saw the Black Plague reach France and England. Understandably, with both sides being hit hard by the plague, a series of truces were called between the two nations in 1357, 1358, and 1359. England would gain the territories they had conquered. But peace wouldn't last too long. England recovered from the plague first and decided it was okay to go back to attacking France sporadically. The Hundred Years War wouldn't pick up in full again until 1369. The second phase, also called the Caroline War, was named for King Charles V of France. While the Edwardian phase was a big time for England, the Caroline War was France's chance to shine in the Hundred Years' War. The main leg of this phase began when Charles V requested Edward, the Black Prince, come to France in order to oversee matters of the Gascons within Aquitaine, an area technically under English control. When the Black Prince refused, the war started up once more. This phase of the war saw both King Edward III and Edward the Black Prince die. Charles V would also die during this phase. So at one point, England's king was Edward III's young grandson, King Richard II, and Francis King was Charles VI. Richard was only 10 when he was crowned in 1377 and Charles was only 12 when he was crowned in 1380. It was a bit difficult to have a war when both kings weren't adults. So, despite the nobility of England and France doing their best to encourage war, in 1389, the two young kings eventually reached a peace treaty. This treaty was continually renewed throughout the entirety of Richard's reign until he died in 1400, and even then it was renewed through his successor, King Henry IV. Peace would last for about 25 years. But there was still one final phase of the war that needed to occur a phase in which France was in dire need of assistance. Charles VII was born in 1403, the fifth son of Charles VI and his wife Isabella. With how things went in the Middle Ages, this meant Charles was basically said to become a high-ranking noble under one of his older brothers, provided that they lived long enough to become king he was born in an era of unrest within France. Okay, France had been in a period of unrest for centuries, but things were beginning to heat up again as signs of a new main phase of the Hundred Years' War were forming. Specifically, the royal family of France was in trouble with the Duchy of Burgundy, a region in Eastern France. During Charles's childhood, the Duke of Burgundy, Jean the Fearless, had been in a rivalry with the Duke of Orléans a rivalry which resulted in Jean calling for Orléans' death. The royal family declared Burgundy their enemy, thus throwing France into political turmoil. After being forced out of his own home at the age of 10 due to riots, Charles was betrothed to Princess Marie of Anjou, daughter of Louis II of Anjou and Yolanda of Aragon. Marie's parents were claimants to the thrones of Naples and Italy and the throne of Aragon in Spain meaning that this marriage was very important for France's relationships with its neighbors. Also by this point, two of Charles's older brothers had died, meaning he was slowly climbing up in the ranks. Yolanda of Aragon took much interest in her daughter's fiancée, and with her help, Charles soon became the Captain General of France, the highest military rank in the army, at the young age of 13. Probably not a great idea, but it still happened. The next year, 1417, after the death of his brother John, Charles was now the oldest living son of King Charles VI, meaning he was now the Dauphin, the name given to the heir of the French throne. Considering his father was dealing with some very heavy mental issues that ultimately made him unfit to lead, it didn't take long before the Dauphin was acting as a regent for his father. And it didn't take much longer after that before he was forced to make one of his first major moves as the future king of France. In May of 1418, the forces of Burgundy under the command of Jean the Fearless raided Paris and occupied the city. The royal court was forced to flee from the Burgundians and Charles ended up forming a new royal court at the city of Bourges. His new government was known as the Armagnac faction. The animosity between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs did not last long due to the meddling of the English king, Henry V, which we'll get into in a moment. In 1419, Jean and Charles agreed to terms of peace that would see both men rule France side by side in order to fend off the English. They signed a treaty in July and agreed to further peace negotiations in September near Montereau. However, when the two groups met, Charles's men took their chance against John's smaller contingency and killed John the Fearless, saying that it was revenge for the murder of the Duke of Orléans. Charles claimed he didn't know what was going on, but come on, he had to have known it was going to happen. With Charles as regent of the more powerful political faction in France, it seemed like it was only a matter of time before he was crowned king. talk about the situation with England. At this time, the king of England was Henry V. Before deciding to restart the Hundred Years War, Henry had sought peace with France with one simple demand, cede half of its land to England. Unsurprisingly, France declined that offer. So, in 1415, taking advantage of the deteriorating political situation in France, Henry decided to lead a military campaign on the European mainland. Among the battles fought during this time was the Battle of Agincourt, one of England's greatest medieval victories. Due to the existence of English longbowmen, considered one of the greatest military groups of the pre-gun war era. Henry's army annihilated the French despite being drastically outnumbered. Instead of doing a victory lap, Henry returned to England with a bunch of captives. He would return two years later when France was in an even worse political situation, which allowed him to capture the region of Normandy by 1419. This was the same year that Charles and Jean the Fearless had their unfortunate meetup. Using Jean's assassination to his advantage, Henry decided to team up with Jean's son, Philip. Philip decided that Henry V was better than the Armagnacs and agreed to see Henry put on the throne as King of France. Now with England and Burgundy fighting together, Charles VI was forced to agree to their terms unless he wanted his country destroyed. In 1420, he signed the Treaty of Troyes, which agreed to him naming Henry's son, also named Henry, as his successor. Okay, so the throne was originally supposed to go to Henry V, but he died one year after the treaty was signed, so we'll just say it was agreed to go to his son, who actually wasn't born until 1421. Obviously, our Charles was not super jazzed about losing his throne to an unborn child. In 1422, Charles VI died. Our Charles then got down to making himself the most important man in France. He finally married Marie of Anjou after being engaged for nine years and immediately crowned himself as the new King of France, despite the fact that the English were still occupying northern France and didn't recognize his legitimacy. So now there were two kings of France the English Henry VI, and the French Charles VII. And the war continued on. Having a literal baby for a king did not stop the English from pursuing war and achieving further military victories against the French. After several years of furthering conflict, the English controlled much of the land north of the Loire River. By 1428, there was only one major city on that river that was able to hold out, Orléans. Orléans was a key target for the English for two reasons. One, it was on the Loire River and would give them free access to said river if Orléans fell into English hands, meaning reason two, the English had free access to conquer lands further south in France. The English forces were originally led by the English Earl of Salisbury. Instead of heading directly for Orléans, he decided to conquer the area surrounding the city. This would cut off any supply routes the French might use when he finally attacked slash laid siege to the city. By October of 1428, Salisbury had taken control of the area surrounding Orléans and, after positioning several groups of soldiers in the area to the city's west, approached the city from the south. Orléans was located on the northern bank of the Loire River, but it had a bridge that crossed the river that Salisbury hoped to block. Salisbury officially laid siege to Orléans on October 12, 1428, but he did not begin his cannon bombardment until five days later. However, the French troops in Orléans had plenty of weaponry they could use to hold back the English and the Burgundian armies. Salisbury then devised a plan to lead an army across the southern bridge. The French saw this coming and instead blew up the bridge, keeping the English at bay for just a bit longer. In an attempt to rebuild the bridge, Salisbury was hit in the face by debris from a cannon and taken out of commission, and he would eventually die from his injuries. Salisbury was replaced by the Earl of Suffolk who sought to create more permanent military posts. That way, the English would be able to wait out the siege as the French in Orléans starved to death over winter. Unfortunately, Suffolk's plan did not work as well as he had hoped because soldiers within Orléans left the city and burned the surrounding suburbs, taking away any provisions the English had hoped to use. And, for some reason, Suffolk just didn't set up any major military posts to the northeast of Orléans which allowed French soldiers to push past any smaller English contingencies to provide reinforcements and supplies. But despite minor French victories during the Siege of Orléans, things were looking dire by spring of 1429. More troops from Burgundy had joined the English troops during the winter. Suffolk's plans for holding out were still somewhat effective. Orléans' only hope was for a large group of reinforcements, hopefully from the city of Blois to the southeast. Luckily, Blois was planning on sending reinforcements after they took out an English supply caravan coming towards Orléans from the north. The Blois reinforcements caught up to the English caravan, and the ensuing conflict is known as the Battle of the Herrings, because the caravan was carrying, among cannons and other weapons, pounds and pounds of herring fish. Unfortunately for the forces of Blois, the English had suspected this sort of action and were prepared for a fight. They handily defeated the French troops, drastically reducing French morale things were so bad that some French nobles were even suggesting Charles VII should go into hiding. However, on the same day as the Battle of the Herrings, the French military was approached by a remarkable figure who promised to change the tides of war. Jean d'Arc was born probably in 1412 to a family of farmers in the town of Domremy. Her father was a peasant but owned about 50 acres of land. So not the poorest of the poor but definitely not a noble by any means. I think it's actually important to know that she was a farmer. You know those images of Jeanne with flowing blonde hair and lily white skin? That's not who she was. Her hair was recorded as being dark and her skin would also be pretty tan from working out in the sun. Her hands were rough she wasn't some princess who one day decided to take up a sword. Her childhood was mired by the early days of the Lancastrian phase of the Hundred Years' War, and despite Domremy being north of the Loire River, the small town never came under English control. In fact, it was mostly within Burgundian land and remained loyal to Charles VII. When Jeanne was 13 years old, she said that she began seeing visions of the Archangel Saint Michael, over the next several years she continued seeing visions of the archangel as well as several other saints. The visions supposedly told Jeanne that it was her mission to see Charles VII crowned as the sole true king of France at Reims, a city that was the traditional location for the royal coronation. Believing herself to be capable of saving France, Jeanne set off from Domremy in search of someone who could get her an audience with King Charles. She was only about 16 years old. In May of 1428, Jean met with a French captain named Robert de Bajacourt and told him of her visions and plans. The captain refused Jean's offer, telling her to go back home. In the meantime, the siege of Orleans was getting underway. In early 1429, Jean returned to de Bajacourt and repeated her pleas. The classic take is that Robert was taken in by Jean's piety and agreed to her second attempt at becoming France's savior. In reality, it's probably that things had become pretty dire, and this random French captain was willing to take a chance that maybe this young woman actually had something up her sleeve. The Battle of the Herring's had just taken place, and Orléans was desperate. Badricourt agreed to escort Jean to the city of Chinon, where Charles was holding his court. She was told to dress as a man, I guess to avoid suspicion, and traveled for a week and a half across war-torn France to meet with her king. The story of Jean's meeting with Charles says that the king was initially wary of Jeanne's tales of holy visions. In order to see if Jean was who she said she was, he hid himself among the members of his court to see if the young farm girl could pick him out. After she did, Charles agreed he would at least hear her story in full. I'm sure Charles was more than happy to be crowned in Reims, but his advisors were still hesitant on taking the advice of some random peasant. Jeanne was taken to the city of Poitiers where, for three weeks, she was interrogated by theologians to ensure that she was actually a devout Catholic woman who was seeking the true Catholic mission of France. One of these tests the theologians had was testing whether or not Jean was a virgin, and I'm not exactly sure how that test went, but it sounds like a disgusting breach of privacy. It's recorded that this test was done by Charles' mother-in-law, but that doesn't make it any less weird. Apparently the words of a virgin would be true, but that of a woman who had already had sex would be considered the words of Satan. Because of course, right? Ugh. After proving herself a virgin and devout Catholic, Jeanne pushed for the court to send her to Orléans so she could truly prove herself. Returning to Charles and Chinon, Jeanne was given her own personal military standard depicting Jesus. She also personally requested a sword that was hidden in the altar of a chapel named Saint catherine de fierbois Okay, so this is the only weird part of the story because apparently no one actually knew that the sword was there until Jean told them about it. So maybe something was up, or maybe someone had told her about it and history just didn't record it. Nevertheless, with her own personal sword and banner, Jeanne had been transformed into a figure of French resistance against England. It was around this time that people began referring to her as La Pousselle which can be translated as the Virgin or, more commonly, the Maiden, which further portrayed Jean as the pure woman who was God's chosen champion for Charles VII, and the champion was now prepared to show her might. In late April of 1429, Jeanne began marching toward Orléans. <laughs> One downfall to Jean's newfound fame and ability to raise French morale was that the English besieging Orléans caught word of a gathering army to the south. Instead of sending an army to meet the new reinforcements, the English started reinforcing the outposts and fortresses they had already created surrounding Orléans. Jeanne, despite being a teenager and a symbol of hope and purity, was hoping to take a roundabout route to Orléans that would approach from the north, where there were more British soldiers because she hoped to immediately tear into the English armies. The other military leaders with Jean were much less bloodthirsty and actually tricked Jean into approaching the city from the east, the part that the English had mostly left wide open for some reason. In fact, Jeanne didn't realize she had been tricked out of her desire for battle until they were basically at the city. Outside its walls, she was met with the commander of Orléans, Jean de Dunois, male Jean by the way, and immediately ordered him to gather troops for an attack on the English-controlled fortress Saint-Jean-le-Blanc. Yep, add another Jean to the list. Dunois managed to keep Jean from storming the fortress by insisting the city needed more supplies and reinforcements before such a mission could be undertaken. Begrudgingly, Jean agreed to the commander's terms. On April 29th, Jeanne d'Arc finally entered the walls of Orléans where she was met with praise. Several days later, while Dunois was away from Orléans, Jeanne exited the city to the south via the bridge that the French had blown up towards the beginning of the siege. She personally called out to the English leader of the Southern Forces, William Glasdale, and asked him to lift the siege. Obviously, Glasdale refused. would have been much easier on the English if he had just listened then and there. Jean then threatened to kill all of the English prisoners in the city if the siege didn't stop. Okay, can I take a step away for a moment to say that I love historical Jean d'Arc? Like, yeah, I know obviously Catholics don't want their saints to be painted as killers and whatnot, but I love this teenage girl who's like, yeah, I'm on a mission from God, a mission to kill you and all your friends. Dunois returned to the city several days later with further reinforcements. With these new soldiers to bolster his army, Dunois led his army to the English-controlled fortress of Saint-Loup, seeking to take it back under English control. At the same time, Jeanne was taking a midday nap, as one does, and missed the army leaving Orléans. Luckily, she managed to wake up, hear about Dunois' plans, and hightailed it out of Orléans in order to take part in the battle. The French drastically outnumbered the English and easily took Saint-Loup. And despite her earlier warning of killing English prisoners, Jean's words to Dunois were what kept 40 English soldiers from being killed. It's also said that she wept for the English soldiers who had died without being able to make a confession for their sins. Over the next few days, the French, still following the banner of Jeanne d'Arc, managed to achieve further victories on the southern banks of the Loire. Eventually, they came to the Bastille d'Agostine, the English fortress at the foot of the southern bridge where William Clasdale was in command. After a hard-fought battle, the French managed to push the English onto the bridge which the English had slowly been rebuilding with a series of pontoons. When Jean's forces tried to further pursue the English, she was struck in the shoulder by a longbow and forced to sit out. But Jean, being, well, Jean, she quickly was back up on her feet and rallied the French to push the English further back. Though the English had made some sort of crossing possible on the bridge, the makeshift bridge was not able to withstand a fortress's worth of soldiers. The pontoons collapsed, sending the English soldiers, Glassdale among them, into the Loire where they were swept away and drowned. With the English forces south of the Loire taken out of commission, Orléans had free access to the French-controlled territories south of the river. There was no way that the siege could continue on. Knowing this, on the morning of May 8th, the English armies in the north, those under the command of the Earl of Suffolk, made a final-ditch effort and lined up for an actual battle. The French army rode out on the fields north of Orléans to meet them. For a full hour, no one moved and then the english retreated several french officers wanted to chase down the english and kill them all they were held back by jean she told them to let the english go it was sunday and orleans had been freed After several further victories against the English in northern France, Jean finally returned to Charles' side. Despite cries from Charles' advisors to reconquer Normandy, Jean was adamant about seeing Charles crowned at Reims. Charles chose Jean over his court. Along the way, the French army captured several more English-controlled territories. On July 16th, Charles, Jean, and the army arrived at Reims. The doors to the city were opened for the arrivals, and the following day, Charles was finally crowned as the King of France. He was no longer just a man saying he was king. Jeanne was near his side during the coronation, having fulfilled her perceived destiny, but there was still much to do. The war was far from won. By this time, the English and the Burgundians were beginning to have a falling out. Charles took advantage of the situation to attempt a negotiation of peace with the Duke of Burgundy. The Burgundians, since the early days of the Lancastrian phase of the Hundred Years War, had control of the city of Paris. According to the deal Charles made to strike with Burgundy, there would be 15 days of truce followed by the Burgundians relinquishing Paris to the Armagnac faction. However, the Duke of Burgundy refused to hand over the city when the time was up. Jean immediately suited up for the recapture of Paris, but Charles and his court slowed the situation up a bit. In late August, Jean finally began marching an army towards Paris. The actual siege of the city did not begin until September 8th. During the siege, Jean rode out to the front, playing her classic card of calling out to her enemy to just surrender. And like always, this plan failed. It's also said that she was then shot in the leg by a crossbow bolt and fell into a trench right next to the walls of Paris, where she lay incapacitated until she was retrieved during the night. Overall, things were not going well for the French army. They sustained serious losses and called off the siege the following day. Charles returned to his court, but Jean spent most of the rest of the year campaigning, it was only when she returned to Charles's side in December that she discovered Charles had decided to grant her family titles of nobility. Even though she had failed to recapture Paris, Jeanne was a symbol of French victory. Unfortunately for Jeanne, Charles had finally managed to negotiate a longer-term peace with Burgundy, which would last until Easter of 1430. This peace required the Armagnac French to return several cities they had captured, Jean, as a soldier, was forced to sit on the sidelines during this time. However, the town of Compiègne, one of the cities that was supposed to be given to the Burgundians, refused to be taken. As they prepared for their own siege, Jean rallied her troops to help the citizens of Compiègne against the forces of Burgundy, even if the two sides were supposed to be in a truce. Along the way, many French commanders and their forces joined those of La Pousselle. Taking back Compiègne would prove to be easy, but Jeanne was forced to disband her new massive army considering they were using up too many resources. With a much, much smaller army, Jeanne fought several more battles until on May 23, 1430, her army was defeated in battle and Jeanne was captured by the Burgundians. They sold Jean off to the English who put her on trial. As Jeanne pleaded her case, insisting she was on a mission from God, the English court accused her of heresy, which back then was a crime punishable by death. She was held in prison for about a year until, on May 30th, 1431, at the age of 19, Jeanne d'Arc was burned at the stake. Despite the loss of Jeanne, the woman who had managed to rally the French army and helped lead them to countless victories, the French managed to hold out against the English. In 1435, after the death of Henry V's brother, who had basically been the only man keeping up the alliance with Burgundy, the Armagnacs and the Burgundians finally signed the Treaty of Arras, which was the final peace treaty between the two factions. As part of the treaty, Paris would be restored to the French. Now only fighting against one enemy, Charles managed to centralize his control over France. However, it was not until 1453 after the English defeat at the seemingly normal Battle of Castillon in southern France that the Hundred Years War came to an end. There was no large fanfare, no major peace treaty, just a French victory and then a period of peace. Because he was a king who managed to bring an end to the Hundred Years War, Charles VII is also called Charles the Victorious. He would reign until 1461 when, after suffering infections caused by what might have been diabetes, the king passed away. As for Jean, even in death she was celebrated as a hero, especially in Orléans. She would remain a symbol through periods of strife like the French Revolution, World War I, and World War II. On May 16th, 1920, she was finally canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church, officially becoming one of the patron saints of France. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, it's another trip back to Rome for the Julio-Claudian saga. We've pretty much covered all of Augustus' time as the first emperor of Rome and we've paved the way for Tiberius. It's time to finally say goodbye to one man's story as we begin the next chapter of the Julio-Claudian saga.